Hi, everyone. Just a note. This podcast was recorded during the time that we were all sheltering in place due to the pandemic and prior to current world events. Welcome to The Awardist, the podcast from Entertainment Weekly that takes you inside this year's Emmy race with interviews, analysis, and more. I'm Sarah Rodman, executive editor at Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic and Entertainment Weekly, covering all things TV and then also more TV. So much TV. So I thought this week we would talk about what books we were reading. (laughs) Because you know what I hate? When people are like, turn off the TV and read a book. These things are not mutually exclusive. So I've been reading a book about TV. Kidding. (laughs) I have been reading a book about Ted Templeman, a fantastic producer from the 70s and 80s who produced a bunch of Van Halen, Doobie Brothers, and Nicolette Larson albums. So that's what I have been reading when I turn off the TV. Kristen, have you been reading anything when you turn off the TV? Yes, I'm actually uh, about to start reading a new book by one of my favorite authors. Do not laugh. Her name is Francine Pascal. She's the creator of Sweet Valley High, but she also writes adult books. And she wrote a new thriller called Little Crew of Butchers about a guy who basically gets uh, held hostage by a bunch of evil children. And he has to figure his way out. It's, you know, a psychological and, you know, sort of action packed thriller. And I'm excited to read it. All right. That's good. So not just TV recommendation, Jill. That's right. Book recommendations. And both of our books are very dramatic, which is fitting for this week's. <laughs> I'm doing what I, I can it. here. I I'm doing it. what I can for this week's category, which is outstanding drama series. So this really is the category, right? This is the the golden end of the night last Emmy category, the one that we have been deluged with amazing Mm -hmm. series uh, in the past 10 years. So we will be talking about some of those shows and um, our current contenders. And then later on, Kristen is going to be chatting with two people who gave wonderful performances this year that we think are going to be nominated, Bob Odenkirk and Nicole Kidman from Better Call Saul and Big Little Lies, respectively. I mean, you can't, you can't beat that. You can't beat that. But right now I'm going to beat Kristen at trivia and we're going to turn it over to our podcast producer extraordinaire slash quiz master, Noah Everhart, to see how good we are at Emmy trivia. Noah, over to you. Let's get right into it. Only two shows that were in their seventh season have won this award. So what are those two shows? So two shows that have won Outstanding Drama Series. I do know one answer to this, and I'm going to guess the other answer. But I know that Law & Order won this in its seventh season, and I'm going to guess that the other show was Game of Thrones since they won last year. Well, and I was going to say Game of Thrones, which I knew was their seventh season, and guess the other one, but you told me you knew that it's Law and Order. So. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we need some kind of buzzer system. I know, that we right? both get to guess both times. It's so democratic. So how do we do, Noah? You both got it completely correct. Oh, nice. Wow. Good setup. I thought you were going to say completely wrong. That would be amazing. This category has been around for a long time. It's been under many different names. What was the original title of this category from 1951 to 1954? Uh, (laughs) I 
feel like at one point they combined drama and comedy or it wasn't even they weren't, you know, dividing it at all by by that. So I feel like it was it like outstanding primetime television series. I'm going to just say they maybe they didn't say outstanding back then. I'm just going to say they just said (laughs) best drama series and change it to outstanding later. I think we're probably both wrong. You're both wrong, but you're, <laughs> but you're close. Uh, best dramatic show was the original. Interesting. Title. So I was closer. You you were oh closer. I don't know if you get a half point. No, I get no points for that. You get no points. <laughs> I get no points. I'm just saying I was closer. Well, thank you, Noah, Quizmaster Noah, for joining us again this week. We are going to jump into outstanding drama series. So a refresher for last year's race, as we both noted, Game of Thrones won last year, mm-hmm. which was controversial <laughs> to some, to many, I would say. And its competition was Better Call Saul, The Bodyguard, Killing Eve, Ozark, Pose, Succession, and This Is Us. So of that crowd, obviously Bodyguard is out which is sad for all you Richard Madden fans out there. Game of Thrones is out, but Better Call Saul, definitely a returnee, I'm sure. Killing Eve, a possibility. Ozark, for sure, the way people have been talking about it. Pose, possibly. Succession, 1,000%. Yes. And maybe this is us. So it doesn't actually leave a ton of room for other people. So what do you think, Kristen, what do you think is possible here? You know, all those you mentioned, but I, you know, the other thing to throw in the mix now is The Crown, which Mm. hadn't been eligible the year before, and The Handmaid's Tale, which, uh, again, wasn't eligible the year before, and that's been nominated every season. So I feel like, you know, Succession, Better Call Saul, Ozark, The Crown, Handmaid's Tale are all as close to a lock as you can get. Big Little Lies is a possibility. It's never been nominated as a series, which is interesting. Um, That is interesting. But, you know, acting nominations up the wazoo. Killing Eve, like you mentioned, Pose. I would love to see it get a nomination, but I think because when you get Handmaids and The Crown back in there, it gets to be much harder for it to slip in. Morning Show. Morning Show, absolutely. That's the big spoiler this year for anybody that was in that last spot. Whoever was hoping to edge in, if that's Pose or even maybe Killing Eve. Right. Like, or This Is Us. Like, that's the slot that Morning Show is 100% taking. Yeah. And then there's also uh, The Outsider, which uh, on HBO, which a lot of people like. Again, not my thing. I'm a too wussy, but um, a lot of people like it. So I think it's a possibility. I think it's going to be harder for weaker seasons of previously favorite shows, whether it's Killing Eve, Pose. It's going to be hard for them to squeeze in when you're up against Olivia Coleman as Queen Elizabeth, you know? Absolutely. And Handmaid's Tale, it was, again, you know, definitely a weaker season, but it seems to be just sort of perennially a favorite. Yes. But I think that the the other possibility here, too, of the like, hey, remember, this show was great. And oh, my God, the last season of it was actually good is Homeland. Oh, I think that yes. Homeland might make like a late stage resurgence because I have not watched. I'm sorry to say I once did love this show and I stuck with it, I think, through the fifth season. But people are saying this season has yeah. just been incredible. Um, so that could come back. And there's that final season, you know, sort of bias, like 
with Game of Thrones, yes, it was controversial. Not everybody loved the final season. But on the other hand, its contribution to television, I think this was sort of a lifetime achievement award in in that case. And I wonder if Homeland could slip in in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just the way people are talking about it actually makes me want to go watch it. <laughs> with, with so many things to watch, it's hard to think about going back because, you know, you'd have to catch up on everything that you missed, or I do because I'm a weird completist like that. Then what is on your wish list, Chris, that you'd like to see in this category? I mean, you are going to uh, be tired of hearing me say this, but uh, the good fight. Really? Shocking. You yes. think that the good fight, I'm That's not sure correct, I've ever people. heard you talk about that. This show. isn't even, you know, it's best season, but it deserves it retroactively. <laughs> and again, I'm going to throw it out there. Perpetual Grace Limited, real long shot, but it's an incredible show. So good. I would love to see a season two. I'd love to get it on there. Um, I know it's a very, 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 very long shot, but those are my two. I will keep repeating them into the universe, much like The Secret in an effort to get the universe to bring it back to me. We are here to manifest with Kristen. some nominations. So what's, what do you want to manifest? Well, I'm going to repeat myself as well. People are going to enjoy this so much. I'm going to go back to cherish the day, yes. on own, which I have said previously. And I stand by, it was one of my favorite shows of 2020. I just think it was constructed really well. The lead actors, Osha Rokmar and Alano Miller are excellent. And it, it's a grown up adult drama with some great comedy and Miss Avery DuVernay. She knows what she's doing. Oh, by the way, we didn't mention last time, Cicely Tyson is in it. Cicely Tyson, y'all. And she's great in it. And she's 97 years old. (laughs) That's incredible. So we need to give it up for Cicely Tyson and cherish the day. So that is also my crazy long shot. But the the actual list of shows is actually really, the ones that we think are probably going to get nominated is a pretty solid list of entertaining. And I just feel like this is Better Call Saul. I really want it to be Better Call Saul's year. Oh God, I do too. It's so good. I I hope that it doesn't come down to who spends the most money (laughs) because then we might be looking at a morning show win, you know, and we've talked about this. We love Jennifer Aniston and she deserves it. Um, But I do think that, uh, you know, the show itself overall is maybe not best drama material. Although I loved it. <laughs> I know, I know. But you loved the performances more than the actual overall yes. show, the, right? I had like lots of problems with some yeah. of the plotting, but the performances were so good. And I think there was something just so cathartic about women being central in a way, and it's not a love story. Yeah. Something about it really, really spoke to me. So, okay, we're going to take a break from me rhapsodizing about... <laughs> Morning show speaking to me. When we come back, we're going to have some great interviews that Kristen did with our Better Call Saul fave, Bob Odenkirk, and the estimable Nicole Kidman from Big Little Lies. So do stay tuned. This week, I had the honor of speaking to two incredible actors slash frontrunners in this year's Emmy race. First, Big Little Lies star Nicole Kidman reveals what it's like to slap Meryl Streep in the face many, many times. While Better Call Saul star and perennial nominee Bob Odenkirk took us inside Saul's brutal trip through the desert this season. Next up, let's talk to Big Little Lies star Nicole Kidman. 
thank you so much for talking to us today. And I'm excited to talk to you about a bunch of things, including Big Little Lies. First season, uh, Celeste's arc was about sort of building up the courage to get out of a bad and unhealthy situation. And in season two, she was in danger again. And in this case, it was, you know, danger of losing her kids. Uh, and she had to really fight for, her, you know, her survival in that way, too. And I'm just wondering for you, what was the biggest challenge in terms of her season two arc and what she went through? He's gone and he's dead. She's still um, in a relationship with him. So it was very important that it wasn't like some superhero who suddenly, you know, season two, she's all recovered and healed and free. Right. Um, it's obviously unbelievably complicated leaving an abusive relationship and how you leave. And many times women go back. I've done an enormous amount of, you know, research and also talking to psychologists and 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 women and, you know, just used my own sort of way of navigating through so that this was a very truthful account for Celeste. Obviously, every woman's story is different. Every um, person with the abuser and the perpetrator is, they're all different. Right. But this one had to be explored in a way where she was still um, yearning and, and in a way because he isn't in the house causing the danger and then therefore the 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 anger and the and the disgust and the hatred towards him, she could sort of mask a lot of that and be um, remembering the good and wanting to keep for the boys the father in a good light. So right. it's incredibly complicated and having that amount of time, seven hours to explore it, but obviously not having seven hours of just Celeste storyline. It was still like kind of trying to do it so that there was truth and then having this woman who is family arrive and her relationship, it, she's grieving the loss of her son and wanting to put her into the family in some way. But it was all just like a time bomb in a way. And these yeah. women who couldn't express themselves for their own reasons and but trying and trying to um, move forward. And I loved how complicated it was. You know, Mary Louise behaved in certain ways, but Mary Louise really felt Celeste could not mother these children. And at times Celeste was having enormous difficulty, but she was coping. Right. And I think she sort of hit her bottom and was able to rise to the occasion when she went, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose my children right. if I don't really confront what all of this is. And that's hard. Yeah. And so it's a very complicated storyline. And it's such an interesting dynamic that's explored uh, about women, including with Celeste this season, in that, you know, the show always explores the dynamic of women supporting each other. But this season especially, there's also the instance of women undermining each other mm -hmm. or doubting each other. You know, mm -hmm. even Celeste with her own lawyer isn't mm -hmm. quite sure her own lawyer is up to up to the challenge. Yeah, well, Celeste is scared, mm -hmm. deeply scared and still enormous amount of shame and trying to sort of present something yet not deal with a lot of the underlying issues. So that has ramifications. I always try to go, there's not really judgment here. There's just agnosis. Right. 
I want to talk about those courtroom scenes, which are so incredible. I mean, the first time Celeste is on the stand and you're facing Dennis O'Hare's character, um, it's so tense and so fraught. How did you get in the right mindset to kind of, like you said, go through all the the journey she goes through, even in that one conversation? I think because I've played her now and she's entered my psyche in such a deep way, um, I stay orbiting around the character for the duration of um, when I when I shoot. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm I am Celeste, but I have so much of her circling me and entering me, which is just strange. But that's the way it is. And I think when you're doing something that is long form, I call it long form cinema because that's what it feels like. Yeah. Um, then those that that's the just the way in which I work, and it's just always there, and it's so deep. It's just it has to be very deep work, mm-hmm. and so I stay pretty much in my own um, world. And Meryl's the same. So we kind of just were very distant while we were shooting those scenes and also because she looked so different. Right. We did it almost like theatre where we would do huge long takes and that was fantastic as an actor because it really just becomes real. Right. And and it becomes this sort of wave that you're riding. It's very different every time and I was just lucky to have somebody like Dennis and Meryl to play opposite and Perna, all of us, just stayed in it. Yeah. It was exquisite way to work. We had the courtroom all built and we would just come in every day. It was sort of looming through. Did you feel the dread? Like you said, it was looming Mm. over you. Like, because it was such an important moment. The season sort of built up to the moment when Celeste examines Mary Louise on the stand. And there's so much, it's so crucial to the story and it's crucial, like fans were waiting for it. Like, Mm. did you feel pressure? (laughs) No, I prepared. I mean, I knew everything. Like there's a there's a way in which you can work as an actor where you don't know any lines and you're very sort of um, scrambling and, and tr- clutching for those and that's a particular, sometimes that's wonderful in a scene. This scene, everything had to be like laser sharp so that then it could be discarded. It wasn't like clutching for the legalities or the jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, it just had to be at my fingertips. So in terms of being a lawyer, that had to come rising up and the sense of justice and the sense of fight. I know this is a woman. I know this is a career. I know what I can do and I know what I'm right. capable of. And within that comes some healing because comes some self-esteem. And that's so much of Celeste's thing is that she doubts her own strength and her own ability to handle things right now. So it, the role is so beautiful because it's so, so layered. And, I mean, I could play her for the rest of my life exploring the way her her life unravels you just go oh okay jump off the cliff and try right and I've always tried that through my whole career anyway as a and as a person you jump off right why not Why not? (laughs) it's part of being an artist it's part of being challenged and it's just like you know I'm working with the greatest actresses in the world Fans, you know, lost their minds over a lot of things this season, which were so great. But the maybe the thing they lost their minds over the most was Celeste yeah. slapping Mary Louise. And right. I've heard, uh, you've talked a little bit about shooting this. You practiced on your mom. Is that I correct? Did. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, it's not my my natural impulse to hit. <laughs> so to hit anybody is is weird for me anyway. So I was just like, oh my gosh, I was in Australia. I think it was in my birthday party, and we have such a weird family. So I didn't hit my mom, right. but I pretended, practiced hitting her and seeing whether that could work. Um, and she loved it because she could <laughs> sell the slap. Right. So, um, and then I realized that it was going to be really shocking, but it was absolutely viable. You know what I mean? Right. That, I, that it was in me. So, so I could do that because the delicacy of my mama's face, let alone the delicacy of Meryl's face. Right. I was like, oh my God. I mean, there's something about doing that with a guy where you go, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, slap right. this guy. And if I miss, his face can probably handle it. But Meryl's face, I had to be like just so on it, but at the same time so in it. Right. So that's a weird combo. And her glasses came off. Well, that's was, a, was that planned? or No, it was, no. Oh, no way. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't planned, but great, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's What's incredible. not planned is always better than what's planned. But I never actually connected with her face, thank the Lord. She could trust me. Any actor, you can trust me. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're obviously expert at fake slapping. I mean, I've I'm just wondering. I've been trained enough in stunts and all yeah. of those things. That's part of why you train. And, yeah. I mean, it's important. Was it a scene where you had to do multiple takes or how yes. does it? Yeah. Many takes. That adds the pressure too, that you're slapping. They were different every time. Wow. Mm. Why do you think fans loved it so much? I, I mean, Because <laughs> it's so shocking, right? Yeah, it really was. Really and I'm was. so much taller than her. I felt terrible, but that's <laughs> Celeste does feel terrible after she's done it, like incredibly ashamed of herself, which is a great thing because then she feels guilt. And when you feel guilt and shame, you're in that person's power in a way because you're having to then apologize and, and really bow down. And so it's all beautifully woven, those things. You know, you've done some, you know, Big Little Lies. You've done Top of the Lake. You've got The Undoing coming up. You're doing, you know, a lot of really I great. I had an amazing time working with Susanna Beer. Oh, well, I've seen about four episodes and I oh, love it. And I, yes, because oh, it was supposed to premiere. That's right. It's heartbreaking. I hope that it's okay that it's out in October. You know, I think that's good. Yes. Honestly, like there's going to be a, a disruption to the fall season anyway. So the, the more things right. that networks can hold on to and put you know, on Later. in the fall. That makes sense. I was in pretty much every scene of that. So it's very yeah. different to Big Little Lies. It was like going through a psychological, the psychological ringer. But that's so fascinating too, to have these females on screen depicted. So often we don't have these roles to go and have this time and they don't have this kind of success. They get, you know, push to the side. So for the world to be changing and for the appetite for um, these these women's stories, it only builds compassion and understanding for all of us, I think. And do you feel like, is that one of the things you like about television? Because all of these roles you've talked about with television, I mean, they are telling really complex and mm. interesting female stories. You have more time, mm -hmm. which I love, and they have a far, they reach further. Yeah, for sure. They have an extraordinary reach, which I'm stunned at. And having made many films, mm -hmm. 
they're they're glorious to make because they're they're there and you're part of a cinematic history. But to now be on this this the the forefront of this new era when you can go and see these things and I've just sort of eaten up normal people. You wouldn't go and see normal people as a film. It would probably get lost, but it's right. now reached an audience, and particularly a younger audience, who are just devouring it. And that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, certainly right now everyone's desperate for good stories to take them out of this situation. So that's uh, what was heartbreaking for us with The Undoing, because it was like, oh, that would have been. It'll still be excellent in the fall. We'll see. <laughs> You know, I spoke to your co-star, Hugh Grant, uh, when initially... Oh, did you? Yeah. I did when we were, um, you know, when it was going to come out in May. And he told me a story about the first time he met you. Uh, oh, God. And he said it was at a dinner in the 90s. Uh, that is you, the real story, yes. And he, yes. He, the, the interesting thing is he said <laughs> that you and your sister speak a secret language. We do, Yes. <laughs> He found that quite interesting. Is this something you've done your whole lives? Not our whole lives, like not when we were tiny, tiny, but certainly when we entered into the teen years because we were like, how do you communicate, particularly about men, um, boyfriends and everything, in (laughs) front of them (laughs) or at a party and they don't have a clue what you're saying? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's a powerful tool. I recommend it to any sisters. Did you, how, how did you craft this language? Um, it's the Bodega language. Do you know that one? I don't. Oh, oh, okay. Well, you add certain syllables at the end of certain consonants. It's it's sort it's of like all, Pig Latin, but yeah, yeah, yeah a little right. bit different, more complicated. Yeah. But once you click into it, it's really easy, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can understand everything. I see. Okay. Well, it seems like men 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 have a really tough time grasping it. <laughs> well, that, then it served its purpose, didn't it? So good. <laughs> so helpful. So I know you uh, have to get going, but I just wanted uh, to ask you, you mentioned normal people. Is there anything else you and the family are watching uh, during this time of staying at home? I mean, we've, we're, we're, we've watched Mrs. America. We've watched Little Fires Everywhere. These are my friends. So it's so good to see. Um, those stories just, you know, yeah. out there in the world we've watched. I mean, we go to the the good old staple of Dog Whisperer. Oh. It always makes us feel good. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. Oh, yeah. It's just solid. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's comfort TV. Comfort know? TV and a great thing to watch with kids Yeah, because you just go, okay. And then we've been addicted to Last Dance. Oh, yeah, that's a that's another one that people are loving. Yeah. We watched Unorthodox, beautiful direction. Oh. Um, and beautiful performance. So yeah, we've eaten quite we've eaten, listen to me. I <laughs> <laughs> devoured them. Yes. Um, I miss going to the cinema. I miss I miss it. And I so hope that that stays alive. Um yeah. my heart breaks for these, you know, we have a the Regal's cinema down the road, and I'm just like, oh. And we have a beautiful cinema called the Bell Court, which is a non-profit art film. So um, I will do anything to keep these places alive. I know it's such a struggle for people, but hopefully they can weather the storm because there are a lot of film lovers. There is, and we went to a drive-in. Keith did a concert at a drive-in. Really? Yes. You know, the drive-ins are doing well. Right. Yeah. 
but he did a he did a show for the um actually the Vanderbilt the healthcare workers here but boy it was just lovely to be outside right live music you know he's always just jonesing to play guitar and to be able to play and just have people in their cars at least listening to music you know, I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, hopefully theaters and movie theaters will survive because people really do crave that communal experience. Yeah. So the arts, we have to just will them to keep going. And yeah, so I've been writing and I've been thinking and I've been, we just got a beautiful, beautiful show called Things I Know to Be True at Amazon, which was a play that I saw in Australia and it's written by Andrew Pavel and it's gorgeous. So that's um that's wonderful. And Great. then expatriates with Lulu Wang is what my passion is because she she's written with um, an Australian writer, Alice Bell, the most gorgeous scripts. And so you're hoping to produce these going forward? I would be in expatriates. I oh, just great. Lulu and I are just like joined at the hip. I, I'm crazy about that woman. Um, I loved the farewell and yeah. her. And this is you know this is set in Hong Kong. So it's, you know, how we're going to do it, I don't know. But she talked about a, a will right. and a desire and a creative mind that can sort of just flow like water. So, Well, it is, it is so good to hear you talk about, you know, what you've got coming up in addition to the undoing, just because it's nice to like have something to look forward to. <laughs> well, yeah, we may not have it on the when or how, right, but, but you know it's hopeful, there. yeah, artistically us just talking to Lulu on the phone and talking about it is, is um, oh, that's important for us to keep creating. I would be remiss if I didn't make this my last question. Do fans mm-hmm. have a hope for uh, Big Little Lies season three? Any hope at all? They do. Yay. I mean, I'm not sure when. Sure, sure. <laughs> the thread that that binds all of us on this through this is so strong, and the desire to all be um, working together again. We're very close. The the you yeah. know as a group, you know, if we can come up with things that might be that would be magnificent, we would. I would say we, we would all jump in. We will uh, we'll keep see. sending good thoughts out into the <laughs> Send universe. Send good thoughts. <laughs> push us forward. <laughs> we We've all got to help push each other forward. Exactly. That's what we'll do. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll will yeah. it into being. But thank yeah. you so much for your time. And thank you. I'm really excited to see more of The Undoing and hopefully everything else you've been talking about. And stay safe with you and your family. Yes. Yes, here in Nashville. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now on to the interview with Bob Odenkirk from Better Call Saul. Let's start by talking about uh, the decision to end the show after season six and why why do you think that's the right way to go? Being I'm not a writer on the show. I always just sort of felt that we shouldn't go longer than Breaking Bad. That's the big show. That's the thing that spawned our offshoot. I think it's hard for people to commit to these shows that last, you know, six seasons or whatever. Well, as a performer, is it kind of helpful or is it more pressure to know, like, you have two more seasons left, you know, this is what we need to accomplish. Does that help you? Uh, It doesn't affect me much. I'll tell you what, I like when things move faster. And I think that because we're coming to the final season, 
They simply have to move faster and they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the journey, the episode eight of the season in the desert is a big, big episode visually and yeah. story-wise. And, and it's also a big episode for the character's journey. Right. I mean, he, he sort of embraced it consciously at the beginning of the season. He said, this is who I am now. Right. I'm going to make this work. But I think that for me in episode eight is when he really uh, committed to it deep in his soul. Like I'm going to do this and I'm out of almost rage and anger, which is weird because you think about Walter White and, and I think there's a similarity. There's that amazing scene in episode eight, you know, when Jimmy's, I'm going to call him Jimmy. I still can't, I still can't do Saul yet, but when Jimmy's in the interview room with Lalo and he's about to walk away and it's such an important moment, like the viewer knows how important it is, but, but Jimmy Saul doesn't know, you know, how did you decide to play that moment? Cause it really, it changes everything when he stops and he says a hundred thousand dollars. I think he's a guy who realizes that if he passes this up, this Lalo offering to participate on that higher level, with bigger criminals, he he's going to pass up that shortcut to being important and powerful. And he can't believe he was released from this demand. And then in his mind, he's going, how much could I have gotten from this guy? Could I, And it's almost like he's asking himself, could I have gotten? And then the words come out 100,000. Yeah. And also it's an awareness that this is an opportunity. It's not like next week he's going to get another client who might be able to pay him massive bucks. Right. This is probably once in a lifetime, you know, but probably no more than two or three times. And I think he sees Walter White the same way. He is the kind of client you want. He's going to keep it together. The way I played it was he's running the numbers in his head. What did I just pass up as he walks out? What did I just say no to? There's so many great moments this season, even before episode eight and episode seven, that blow up with Howard, you know, I travel in worlds you can't even imagine. And it's like, it felt like Jimmy had almost been reciting that speech in his mind almost for years, you know, like this, he's been working up to this moment. I feel like a lot of times when Jimmy goes ballistic and his ego comes out, he's talking to his brother, Chuck. Yes. And, and, and he's saying, you, you really underestimated me. Not only am I good, I'm great. It's insane. <laughs> it's emotion speaking. It's not logic. Right. And if you if you understand it that way, then you almost can get behind him and say, hell yeah, you are. You're a valuable human being. And I mean, the truth is, he can't believe that Howard is offering him this position. Mm-hmm. And it is what he wanted for so long. It's what he wanted. So... Oh, fuck me. Now you're going to offer it to me now that I've kind of really crossed over. And uh, and then there's just anger at the brother for not letting it happen when it could have happened organically. The rage inside this guy is uh, has been built up. And some of it is, you could say, justified. But yeah, I mean, it definitely did seem like he was delivering that speech to Chuck. And also, you know, all his anger toward Howard, the bowling balls and the prostitutes, like, did any of that, like, was that him still working out his anger toward Chuck or was he feeling, is he mad at himself too? Is he oh, he's mad at himself. Oh yeah, yeah. He's guilty. Yeah, he knows he's guilty. And 
he doesn't want to look at that. And, uh, and the pain that he feels turns into rage. He can't look at it without feeling so horrible. I don't think that I agree with the choices that Jimmy is making to become Saul. But if you look at it, that Jimmy made an incredibly honest effort to be a good, helpful lawyer and participate in things at HHM. And Howard sensed that. And then he just let Chuck steamroll it. I mean, in a way, Howard's to blame. Right. You can't live your life keeping score like that. That's my argument against Jimmy becoming Saul. It's it's really okay to use hate, resentment to fuel you, but only in a positive way. <laughs> if it makes you a better person, right? then go ahead and use it. Right. But not if it makes you a worse person. You know, obviously another huge moment this season came when uh, Jimmy and, and Kim decided to get married. And, you know, it's such a shock at the end of the episode. And then to see how it plays out, how much of it does Jimmy really feel is a real marriage? How much does he want it to be a real marriage versus like, you know, I know they're both telling themselves this is a business arrangement. We're like, you know, this will protect us. Oh, geez. The two characters do that math differently, I think. In general, I'd say it's a business relationship that could make their actual relationship better. They both are aware that if they could be more honest with each other, then the, potentially this relationship could work out. That That's one of the keys to helping make this work. Jimmy's obviously had a hard time being honest with her. Mm -hmm. And if she takes out that impediment of he could get me into trouble and right. he can share everything with me. Well, she's making an effort to make it work, but they do have real feeling for each other. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I'm rooting for them. On the other hand, I'm worried about Kim, but it does seem like, like you said, it, depending on the time of day, you know, it, it differs how they feel. And so, you know, after Jimmy's ordeal in the desert, you know, he's really struggling with not only like the PTSD of it all, but his conscience. And, you know, there's that great scene with Mike in the car where he's kind of like, what have I gotten myself involved with? But I guess I'm from your point of view and how you decided to, you know, work it through for the character. What did he think being a friend of the cartel would mean versus, you know, what he actually experienced in that Bagman episode? The way they've written it, he seems to be aware that choosing to be a friend of the cartel is a big, big choice that has a lot of danger to it. He doesn't understand the specifics of it. And there's no question that he's attracted to the importance, the, the degree of importance that it would lend him. He's not clueless, but he is trying to not look at the downside of that choice. The fact that it immediately falls apart is uh, hilarious. <laughs> what was shooting that episode like? I mean, it looked Hard. very uncomfortable. It was. It turns out the desert is hot. <laughs> it's really hot. It was like 110 every day. And we had a lot to shoot. And I spent most of the big shootout. Of course, I'm on my stomach for most of it or crawling. And, you know, it's unbelievably dusty and, you know, you're spitting up brown, dark, gray, gray spit, you know, lung, <laughs> your lungs are capturing all this dust. 
it was about an hour and 45 minute drive to the set. And then of course you have to get makeup and all. So you leaving the house at like 4am. Right. And, and then you shoot for every second of daylight that you got. It was hard. It was the hardest thing physically I've ever done as a performer. And everyone in the crew had to weather that. And, yeah. and it was very, very difficult. We had two or three people had to drop out. They couldn't breathe well enough after a while. They had too much dust in their lungs. We, we got to a point where we all kind of agreed in a, to, to look out for each other. Mm-hmm. And that for the whole crew, because there was like one of the actors who just seemed to be, you know, having a heat stroke of some yeah. kind. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. But so then we, people helped out right away and they watched out for each other. Yeah. I mean, as a performer, when the conditions are as awful, like are mirroring what the character is supposed to feel. Is that's that... easier. That helps you. <laughs> no, that's e- That's easier. Yeah. Listen, I'm all for acting. We don't need to do snuff films to have people <laughs> shoot other people and stuff on camera. It, it helps to have it really be challenging if you're, that's what you're representing because you just play what you feel. Right. Right. There's that great scene with Jimmy is trying to eat breakfast and Kim is making orange juice with the juicer. And it just really like, you know, kind of triggers his PTSD for you as you were playing it. What is going on there with Jimmy? Well, he didn't tell her what happened, you know, about the shootout. It's PTSD and he doesn't, he doesn't want to share it with her and he's not remotely over it. I once got held up by somebody with a gun. And had a weird experience. Like it was two days later after that. And I got out of a car, a cab in New York, and a person approached me. I wasn't thinking about the incident from two nights ago. Mm -hmm. But the way this person approached me, I reacted. And I was like, back up. You know, I I yelled at this person who was just a stranger. (laughs) Really was just an instinct uh, brought about by the frightening incident so i think it's just that it's just nerves operating and the way it's shot it's so interesting because you see she's putting the orange in and it's literally getting squeezed and it made me think of like he realizes what position he's in now like he's gonna interesting he's never gonna be out from under that pressure yeah wow that's really really great i think it's true i think it's true (laughs) I mean, it's all about the pressure. These writers build this machine that crushes the characters, whether it's Walter White or in this case, Jimmy McGill. It's a lot of fun to watch, but it's a sad commentary that their worst instincts seem to be what is left. Right. I mean, this season more than ever as a performer, like you're having to balance so many contradictory or different emotions in a single scene. Even like that Lalo scene where you know what you should do versus what you want to do versus... So, so many things are going on and you can see it happening. For you, what's been the biggest challenge, whether it's a particular scene or just getting into the mindset? I had a harder time with last season. And I liked the notion that Jimmy compartmentalized his brother's death. And that he carried on with his life, pushing away any feelings of of guilt. And 
even sadness, really, just saying, I have to move on. I understood that as a choice and a defense mechanism that any real person would very potentially have. Mm -hmm. I struggled with him cracking up in the car. That was last season where he cries. Yeah. I just feel like people don't cry that much, especially guys. That was hard. And not because it's just because I just don't feel I worry about tears being fraudulent or easy. And also uh, the way in which tears, well, they can play the subtext as text. And this season has been not as hard because the character is gaining in self-awareness and he's easier to play because he knows himself. Yeah. And, And there's a certain naivete and, you know, I'm 57 years old. I'm sort of quite a bit older than the character. Mm-hmm. I'm at least 15 years older than him. So it's hard to play that naivete and innocence. The more self-aware he has become, the easier he has been for me to play. Right. The complexity of his own choices, I get it. Right. I, I, I can do that mental math alongside him easier. Easier. The version of he that he was for the first three and a half years, let's say, was tough because he was naive in a way that you have to get past that in life. Well, and you also know where he's going to end up. And I would imagine on one hand, that's helpful. But on another hand, maybe it's hard when you you have to play so early on in his journey. I think that where he ends up is a compartmentalized human being. So He's decided I'm going to be this one version of myself. It doesn't mean he's not a complex person there. He's a cynical person who's made cynical choices. I don't know. I think he's an idealist who's made (laughs) cynical choices when he becomes Saul. We can't end without talking about Gene and uh, the Gene scenes. And I'm wondering, like, just from a production standpoint... Do you shoot those first or how do they, and, and how first does, thing we do always yeah. first thing when you go back to work and you, you need to be Gene, what is that like versus I love then? playing Gene. I love playing Gene. He's under, he's obviously a guy who's swallowed all his natural instincts and his natural energy that he emits us all. I think he looks out at the world and, and he's got a lot of time to think. I personally think a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mull things over a lot, you know? So I just relate to the guy and uh, I can't wait to see who he becomes now that he's decided he's can't take it anymore. Right. He can't swallow it any longer. And I think that's exciting because I want to see who he chooses to be. Do you like to know where things are going or do you want to find out? I like discovering it. I, um, sometimes struggle when I discover what they've chosen for the character and I either don't understand it or might want to push against it. Usually they explain it so that I do grasp it. And oftentimes I simply have to go out on a limb, make the choice and justify the choice that they've written. And uh, I'm thrilled at how it's worked out because their instincts are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Better than mine. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to see where Gene goes, too. It does seem like he's been working toward, even last season, I think it was, when he kind of 
that kid got arrested for shoplifting or whatever, and he couldn't help himself. He had to say, they don't have anything on you. You know, like it's, it's been building up. Yeah. I can't wait to see what he does. I've said to the guys before, Vincent, Peter, it would be interesting if Saul's journey was kind of a variation on Walter White's in that Walter became sort of the worst part of himself. And I wonder if after becoming the worst part of himself, which is Saul, then going through the experience of Breaking Bad, then having to be in hiding, I wonder if he could come out a better version of himself using the better angels of his nature as opposed to Walter White. Right. I don't think that's what will happen. (laughs) But we'll see. Well, we can hope, right? I I do. I'd like to see that. I think it might be, some people might say, well, that's not as fun a journey. It's more fun to see someone break bad or do bad. Maybe that's true. Yeah, but we, we saw that with Saul. So maybe Gene can be, Gene can have his happy ending. Yeah. Well, people like disasters, you know? <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Bracey Horn. Oh, she's so good. Yeah, you know, listen, this show set out to tell you the origins of Saul. To some extent, we've we've got it now. And it'll be interesting to see what becomes of him. But the real discovery was this Kim Wexler character. And I don't think we've figured that one out. And I think, to me, if I'm watching the show, and I am, I'm way more curious to find out who the hell she is and what makes her tick. Who the hell is Kim Wexler? When she confronts Lalo and and gets him to back off, my husband and I have, we had an argument like, is Kim in the game? You know, we talk about, is she in the game? And, you know, I'm like, no, no, she can't be in the game. But after that scene, I feel like she's maybe in the game. Yeah, she is. She has no choice. She had no choice. It's not her choice. It was inadvertent the way it played out, but she stepped into it with the best of intentions, but it's not going to go well, I don't think. Yeah, I'm uh, very stressed out about what happens to her. So, um, no, but she's incredible. And, I, you know, you guys work so well together. I am hoping to see Emmy nominations for both of you. Well, that's very nice of you. I, I hope so, too. I certainly hope for the writers and the direction. I think episodes seven and eight are both masterpieces of direction. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. Uh, stay safe and, yeah. and don't go too stir crazy. <laughs> okay, you too. All right. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. It was great chatting to Bob Odenkirk and Nicole Kidman, and I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of them this Emmy season. And another dynamic duo we have coming up next time, Regina King and Gene Smart from Watchmen. We're going to be talking uh, about limited series performers, and that is a jam-packed category for sure. I'm telling you right now, watch all of Watchmen before you come back and listen to this next week. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may get your podcasts. If you'd like to join the conversation, please tweet at us. Mostly tweet at Kristen, though. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. And I am at 
Sarah A. Rodman. That's Sarah with an H. The Awardist isn't just a podcast. You can also find us across EW platforms on EW.com, in the magazine, and on social media, too. So if you want to binge more of The Awardist, you know where to find it. We hope that you tune in to next week for more of The Awardist. Until then, you can find us on the couch. The Awardist is produced by EW in partnership with Pod People. <laughs>